In a trial in a southern small town, prosecuting attorney called his first witness, a grandmotherly type, you know, elderly woman to the stand. He approached her and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? Why, yes, I know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a boy, and frankly, you've been a, a big disappointment to me. You lie and cheat on your wife, and you manipulate people and talk about them behind your backs. You think you're a big shot when you haven't got enough brains to know that you'll never amount to anything more than a paper pusher. Yes, I know you. Well, the lawyer was stunned. You can imagine, with all that truth coming out. So he points across the way to the defense attorney. He said, Miss Jones, do you know the defense attorney? And she said, yes, I know him. I, uh, Mr. Bradley, I've known him since he was a youngster. He's lazy, bigoted. He has a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anyone. And his law practice is one of the worst in the entire state. Not to mention he cheated on his wife three times and once with your wife. <laughs> yes, I know him. Well, you can imagine now the judge. And he calls the attorneys up to his bench. And he quietly says, if either one of you ask if she knows me, <laughs> I'll have you thrown in jail. <laughs> well, that just popped in my mind, and so I'm going to take you from the ridiculous of that to the sublime. Paul has just made his case for the glorious gospel. And then he's going to ask a series of questions that he already knows the answers to. In verses 29 and 30, we looked at last week, Paul asked a question. Having made his case, now verse 31, he begins. What shall we then say to these things? Or to put it another way, what is there left to say? Romans 8 began with no condemnation. It continued with our coming into glorification. It ends with no separation. As one preacher wrote of this section that we're about to give witness to, no one and no thing can harm the people of God whom He has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, which we looked at last week. To ask more than what has already been testified to is to reveal your ignorance in the matter and inability to, compromise, or to comprehend the mind of God, which I read last week, Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts." What more could be said? Who dares to argue with God on this or any other matter for that sake? And Paul answers his own question with a series of five more questions. And we'll see them as we come to the one after the other. And as he asks the question, there's, there's not three or four different responses. There are no alternative answers. And in rhetorical fashion, Paul challenges anybody and everybody in heaven above or earth below to respond in any other way than what you know is the answer to the question. In fact, so certain 
is Paul of his question. That each question creates for us a promise of God. So the question is asked, and you know the answer, and it becomes a great promise from God. Question number one reveals there's no intimidation for the believer. Verse 31 continues, and this great phrase, if God be for us. Now, whatever else comes after that, if God be for us, whatever else comes after that, you know you've got the upper hand. Who can be against us? Now, if I were to reverse the question, it would be something like, since God is on our side, we can't lose. That's the sense of what he's saying. Had Paul only asked, who could be against us? I am sure that on any given day, on any given occasion, and even sitting right here right now, you'd probably be able to say, well, you know my neighbor. You know my boss, he's got it out for me. Or my kids, or my spouse, or my, and you go down the list of the people that you, see, you feel like they're your enemy. And for no other reason than the fact that you went to church today, or you, you, know, you told them about Jesus, or you said, there's no other way to get to heaven but by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you could talk about some of the enemies that you have faced in life. However, just when I think I've seen it all, heard it all, been through more of life than perhaps is my fair share, someone comes to me with something I could have never imagined, and I say, oh my goodness. That you have been there, that you've done that, that you now have the sense that I can handle the next thing that might come my way is not the question. But is God on your side? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if God be for us, you fill in the blank. For example, this if takes you back up to where we started in Romans 8 verse 1. There is... Therefore, now, no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. So if that be true, then who could possibly reverse that statement and now bring judgment against the people of God? It just can't happen. Our confidence, Psalm 124, is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This little qualifying statement, if God be for us, can be placed in front of your circumstance right now. If God be for us, any circumstance you're facing, and the response is always going to be the same. If God be for us, Matthew 19, with God, all things are possible. That doesn't mean you can do what you want. That's not the point of that. But the thing you're facing right now, if God be for you, working all things together, all the things we've learned from Romans 8, in fact, it takes us all the way back. This, this concept takes us all the way back through the book of Romans. And everything he's been talking about. And now he makes his case. If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, in the context of our salvation, Jesus testified in John 10, it is secured by the Father, the Father who is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. The security we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if God be for us, nothing can threaten the loss of our salvation. 
There's no intimidation, I fear, in life or death. Now, that may be easier for me to say in my circumstance right now because I'm not living in the Ukraine, I'm not facing down guns or the threats of my life. But for which I pray for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, if God be for us, who can be against us? And not only that, but verse 32 is no reservation, no deprivation, nothing is withheld. Verse 32. So he that spared not his own son, the Lord Jesus, but delivered him up for us all, why would you now think, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Why would you not now think he would give you everything you need for life, having already given you his son? God holds nothing back, and the primary evidence of that, he's already given the most valuable thing, the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. The logic of this argument is from greatest to least. He starts out with the most important thing, the most significant thing, and then he works his way down. He says, do you not now think he would give you things needful to life? If God made the greatest sacrifice, do you not now think he would care for us? Imagine the dishonor the dishonor it would be to his son, having sacrificed his son, the Lord Jesus, on the cross for you, for your sins, and now you think he's not going to care for you? That would be a dishonor to his son. Think of any great expense you've ever made in life. I don't know what it is, whether it's the car you've always wanted or the house that you finally bought or the whatever it is. You've spent a lot of money on it. And the more money you spend on it, the more value, the more important, and likely the more you take care of that thing. God has expensed the most valuable thing in all the universe, his son. Do you not now think he will care for you? Well, Luke chapter 12 tells us not a sparrow is forgotten, the ravens are fed, the field is decorated with lilies, and all of this, he says, without a care in the world, how much more precious are you than all of creation, my friend? If God cares for all of that, how much more will he care for you? Oh, you of little faith. Luke 12. Well, this truth is the basis of all we believe, the foundation of our faith, the confidence of our prayer that God will now provide the thing that is most needed, having freely, fully received the most needed thing, His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we leave Romans 8 and verse 32, before we leave verse 32, notice the word freely. You see that there? That word freely has its basis in our word for grace. Grace. To give freely fully, abundantly. As Jesus instructed his disciples in Matthew 10, freely you have received, and so what should you do? Freely you give. Jesus instructed his disciples, and tied up in this concept of God not holding back anything most needed, is in, the, is in reference to forgiveness, right? Ephesians 4 says, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So every time you refuse 
to forgive someone for what they've done to you because you don't know, preacher, and you go on with it, what are you denying? Freely you have received, and freely you should give. The fact that God holds nothing back from you is not only a great promise, but a great principle of the Christian life. 2 Corinthians, for example, chapter 5. As God loves, I love. Matthew chapter 6, as God forgives, I forgive. James 2, it's the motivation of all that we do. For what Christ has done, how can I do less? If God holds nothing back, who are we then to withhold love, forgiveness, service, whereby others may come to know Christ because, preacher, you just don't know what they did to me. And in particular, from the context of our passage, I'm no longer under the law So who am I then to hold others in judgment according to the law? Not only are we forgiven without reservation, but there's no potential accusation, verse 33. So who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justified. So if it's God that justified, then who can lay anything to those he's Justified. So there's only one judge. It's not me. And I'm sure glad it's not you or those closest to me that know all my faults. Remember, the basis of judgment is the law. And every demand of the law has been met in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been satisfied. So if God, the judge, says, I am satisfied with the sacrifice of my son. You are forgiven. Then why would we then hold someone else accountable to something that I can't myself live up to? But who is the great accuser? Satan. Revelation 22, it's Satan. He's the great accuser. And he won't let it go. And he continues to whisper in our ear all the latest failures of life and all the things that somebody said. Remember what she said about what he said? Don't you forget what they did. And don't you forget what you did. And he just is the great accuser because he knows he can't accuse us before the Father, but he whispers in our ear always. And he tries to get us to believe what he has to say about us. In our study on Wednesday nights, he tells the story of little Johnny in a slingshot. Little Johnny wasn't a very good shot with his slingshot. So one day, wouldn't you know, one day, out of sheer frustration at Grandma's house, he winds up his slingshot and takes aim at at Grandma's duck. And guess what? He hit the poor duck and killed it. So little Johnny, you know, he's, he's nervous now. Little Johnny takes the poor little duck, he pulls it out behind the woodshed and buries it. But his sister saw him. You know how sisters can be? Any of you have those? Yeah? My sister was here last week. You should have asked her some stories. Sisters can be that way. Brothers can too, of course. And so uh, they're getting finished with dinner. And Grandma says to little Sally, the sister, help me with the dishes. It's her turn, you know, the rotation of chores. And Sally says... Johnny volunteered to take my place doing the dishes tonight. Didn't you, Johnny? Remember the duck. 
So Johnny gets up and does the dishes. Well, this goes on for weeks because little Sally is holding this over his head. And finally, Johnny says, you know what? Nothing is worth doing the dishes all the time. And so finally, he comes clean with Grandma. And Grandma says, oh, Johnny, I know. I was standing at the window. I saw the whole thing. I've already forgiven you. I'm glad you're able to not let Sally make you her slave anymore. Sometimes we just have to come to understand that we've already been forgiven. My friend, if God has forgiven you, don't let Satan make a slave out of you by whispering in your ear a reminder about all the failures and shortcomings of your life. And of those failures, past, present, and even future, there is no condemnation. Verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? Remember verse 1. It is Christ that died, and yea, rather, that is risen, who is even at now at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Christ has removed all condemnation. There is therefore this double negative, verse 1. There is therefore now no, not ever, any condemnation. We are all covered by what theologians call the fourfold work of Christ. And you see it right here in this verse. Number one, his crucifixion. Do you see it? Christ died. Would he then condemn us? Galatians 3, I'll just give you one verse. Christ has, hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ being made a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Christ died for us. Would he now condemn us? Number two, crucifixion. Number two, the resurrection. Verse 34 continues, Christ is not only crucified, but what does it say? Risen again. Romans 10, 9. And by the way, you can find this in many of Paul's writings and other places of Scripture. God hath raised him from the dead. By the way, if God raised him from the dead, if God the Father raised the Son from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, that itself is confirmation that the Father is pleased with the sacrifice of his Son. Otherwise, leave him dead. But he's, he's pleased with the sacrifice of his son, and he rose him from the dead to prove to you and everybody else that I am satisfied with the sacrifice of my son for the payment of sin, the crucifixion, the resurrection, his exaltation. Christ is even, where does it say he is now seated? Verse 34, where does it say? At the right hand of the Father, right? His position not only confirms his authority in my salvation, but also confirms the work of salvation, the work of Christ in salvation is complete. He's seated. It's done. Remember what he called out from the cross. It is what? Finished. His crucifixion, his resurrection, his exaltation, and his intercession. We've seen this before in verse 27, but you see it there in verse 34. It concludes, who also maketh intercession for us. Hebrews 7 declares he ever liveth to make intercession for us. 
I like what J. Vernon McGee says about this. Did you pray this morning? He asks. Did you pray this morning? Well, you should have, he wrote. But even if you forgot to pray, Christ hasn't. The Lord Jesus Christ has prayed for you today. By this fourfold work of Christ, I am assured of complete safety in the day of judgment. No intimidation, no reservation, no accusation, no condemnation. And for those days, and maybe this is one of them, or this has been, like I said, in January. January was the longest year ever, wasn't it? But as we think of the circumstances we're facing, and so for those days you feel like, you know what? I believe all that preacher, but man, he sure feels like he's far away. So, you know, what's the Lord going to do? What, why, is he out of touch? Why doesn't he come? Why doesn't he do something? There's no separation. Verse 35. And notice it's not what, but it's who. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Seven things that describe the life of Paul. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Notice the focus is on who, not what. And given the what that follows, some days you might think it's a mistake. But as they say, the devil is in the detail. You've heard that before, haven't you? The devil is in the detail. 1 Peter 5 eight says the devil is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour in the circumstance of your life. And he'll twist it. And he'll get you to believe things that aren't true. And he'll beat you down with it. That's the image of verse 36, which is quoted from Psalm 44 and is a frightful image of the target that is on the back of the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't feel it, not here in America, you don't feel it. You start to feel it a little bit when you get off wandering off into politics and other things. You see it in other places of the world. The believer of the Lord Jesus Christ more and more, even in our nation, is becoming the target of hate and resentment and anger. Sheep, wrote Matthew Henry, are not killed because they are hurtful while they live, but because they are useful when they're dead. The historian Tertullian wrote in, during the Roman Empire, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. We haven't experienced this. I'm not afraid. I mean, Wednesday night we had a fellow come in. He was just looking for some ashes this past Wednesday. We had a fellow come in the service, made some of you nervous, I know, as he walked in unexpected and late, and he'd come right from work, just came in and sat down. I'm not really afraid that anybody's going to come in, but I don't know, but you see it in other parts of the world, the things that are going on today, the target that's on the church. While nothing can separate you from God, if you stand for God, it will cost you something. And more and more as we see the day approaching. Evil is always lurking just below the surface. We've seen that in people today and leaders today of the world. Evil 
in ways we could never imagine, things we thought would never happen, not this beautiful city, not this peaceful nation, not, not the Ukraine. No, it couldn't be. But we've seen how evil is lurking just below the surface in the hearts of the ungodly. And the ultimate target will always be the people of God. Paul knew and experienced this all too well. I mentioned as a, it's, a, it's a summary of his life there in verse 35. You can read about it, by the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and chapter 12. And every one of these seven things has happened in his life. But it's always the who, not the what, that confirmed his relationship to God. He confirms it again for us in verse 38. We'll come to that next week. But on those days, you feel like the what is overwhelming. First of all, remember, it's not as bad as Paul had experienced. I'm sorry, but it's not. It's simply not. It's not as bad as Paul experienced. And second, don't ever forget that your salvation was never And is not now based upon things working in your favor. Or even God working circumstances out in a way that I think He should. And that, by the way, is the basis of most excuses of the unbeliever. They're focused on the what, not the who. And they'll say things to you like, I would believe in Christ. I I would come to church. I I would do that. But you don't understand what I've been through. But, and they start to fill in the blank with all kinds of what's of life and circumstances that are keeping them from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. As long as it's about the what, they'll never come. But when it's about the who, the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, your salvation is not based upon what but who. And the authority of God's throne stands behind your salvation. For the believer, remember your salvation has never been about your love for Christ. Let me say it again. Your salvation has never been about your love for Christ, as if you could work it up. And it is not now dependent upon your own best effort to maintain it. 1 John 4 says, we only ever love him because why? He first loved us. The point is this. There is nothing that could ever keep Christ from loving you. There is nothing that could ever keep Christ from loving you. Not the most rebellious person not the most difficult circumstance, not the most violent enemy. It is a simple yet profound truth. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves you. The Bible tells me so. Is there anything better than knowing that you are loved by God and that because of His love, nothing can ever diminish that relationship or ever separate you from the love of God? There is nothing else of which this 
may be said in this world. And at the end of life, you will bid farewell to all the valuable accounts of life. Everything you'll bid farewell. You'll either carry with you the condemning guilt of all your sin or be absent from this body of sin and be present with the Lord. In whom? Not what. In whom are you trusting for the assurance of your eternal salvation?